0: Oh, Father, we are your church, and we do adore you in song, in supplication, in thanksgiving, in proclamation of your holy word. We are your blessed church. We gather together in your name. We do it with delight. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to open to Proverbs once again this morning, the book of Proverbs. If you don't know where it is, it's just about in the middle of your Bible. Just open up in the middle and... Flip the pages till you see Proverbs going by on the, on the top pages. That's how I do it. And uh, you'll come to Proverbs chapter three, and we're in chapter three this morning. We've been talking about Solomon's teaching. Solomon's teaching on happiness and how to be happy. And certainly, it is the Lord's desire for His children to be happy, to be joyful. It is our strength, the joy of the Lord. We're told. We're also told that some of that joy comes from knowing who our Creator is. And that our Creator isn't a, isn't a one-shot deal. He didn't just come in and create and then leave and let things go about their business. No, He's an orchestrator. He's sovereign. He works in all things. There's not a sparrow that falls in the forest, Jesus said, that the Lord does not take notice. And so He is the Creator. He is sovereign. He is involved in even the minuscule things of our lives, and he cares to hear, to hear about them. Um, so I'm going to ask you to open to Proverbs chapter 3 again this morning, and I'm going to read verses 27 through 35. <clears throat> and so Solomon writes, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you today. Do not devise evil against your neighbor for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause if he's done you no harm. Do not envy the oppressor Choose none of his ways, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Amen. O oh, Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that our inheritance will be one of glory and not a legacy of fools, O oh Lord. May we look into your word, follow after it, in Jesus' name, amen. And so here's Solomon giving us these bullet points of Moral actions in life, what to do, what not to do. Don't strive with someone without a cause. Don't be a person of strife. If you owe something to somebody, don't withhold it. Give it to them. All these different points of morality, he points out that the righteous should practice in their day-to-day lives. But let's go back for a little review here. Of course, our reading today begins with with the words, rather, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Friends, if you can do good to somebody, do it. It's really very simple. You might say, well, that's not deep wisdom. You know, for some people it is. Some people are, I don't want to get involved. (laughs) Friends, if you can do good for someone, do it, he's saying. Be active in doing good. Now, when last we met, we spoke of wisdom being present with God in the act of creation. You may remember that. Last week, we read this. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. And so we see the inherent order and purpose in creation. It was not founded haphazardly. It was not the product of a cosmic explosion or some other astronomical disturbance. It, was, it has always amazed me that the purveyors of a Big Bang theory have never adequately demonstrated, to my satisfaction at least, how order comes out of disorder. You blow something up and all of a sudden a world got created. Just how does that happen? I'm going to look into that deeply in this message. In every other instance of an explosion that I know of, disorder Ensues after the explosion and not order and not peace and not goodness. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, it did not cause a wonderful new sense of order in the Hawaiian Islands. The ships were sunk to the bottom of the sea, the city was in ruins, people died, disorder ensued. When the federal building in Oklahoma City was bombed in 1995, the terrorists who bombed it were not awarded with medals for their creative genius. Only death and horror and rubble came out of it. When the Twin Towers fell to terrorists in New York City, there was no order in sight for many days. I remember going down there and looking. We called it Ground Zero, remember? remember going down there and looking into that hole. I remember only weeks or months earlier, being in those towers. Um, Karen's family all lives in proximity. Some of them from their workplaces or their homes could see the towers burn. No, explosions don't bring order and symmetry and beauty to life. That takes intelligence. Only when intelligent minds were put to use was there a return to some semblance of order. It's that way in the world. It's that way in in the cosmos, and it's that way in eternity. It's that way in your home. Order, symmetry, purpose are always the result of intelligent orchestration of events. Always. I know of no exception. It takes a well-ordered mind to bring order out of chaos. Disorder and chaos do not of themselves usher in order. In other words, order does not emerge unassisted from disorder. Order is a product of intelligent design and purpose, friends. And in the case with our world, the intelligent designer is God Almighty. So how could it possibly happen that a dumb disaster in space could put a solar system in place? How exactly does that happen? And, you know, here's what we, we don't ask when we consider these things. Because out of all the mythology that we have in the world, we have Sumerian theology, we have Babylonian, I should say, mythology, right? We have the the Incas and the Aztecs, so everybody has their mythologies, right? Ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks, the Romans all have their mythologies as to creation, but they all speak of matter already being in existence. we When we talk of the Big Bang, where did the bangers come from? Where did the comets and the stars and the heavenly bodies come from? They were just there, we're supposed to receive. But not in the Hebrew story. In the Hebrew story, God preceded his creation and called even matter into being. So let's not forget that aspect of this. And by the way, let me help you with something because... Um, I want to talk about illustrations. Preachers love to use illustrations. So did Jesus. He called them parables. He used other illustrations too. Illustrations are imperfect. If you try to apply them to something they weren't meant to be applied to, they can even be foolish. And that's true even with parables. You know. Now, when I spoke last week of stars, I, I wanted to convey the great distance that mathematicians have calculated for the stars and I told you they might not be there because the light is still traveling to the earth uh, at a rapid rate but the stars so distant it might not be there I want you to know I believe the stars are there okay just so we're I know God created them and I believe they're there so don't be troubled by the illustration it was simply a mathematical illustration to demonstrate vastness now I'm not gonna use that illustration anymore for two reasons one I'm not equipped to do that kind of math. So I'm taking someone's word for it anyway. And I do understand that for some reason, it troubles people to think that a star could have been so far away that the worlds weren't created yet when we know that God created the stars on the third or fourth day. You see what I'm saying? So never take an illustration and try to make it say something it's not intended to say because it will only trouble your mind. I remember teaching on the prodigal son. Now you can do whatever you want with the characters involved in the story of the prodigal son, right? But the father in the parable is God. Agreed? All right. Now I have, I have taught on the prodigal son where someone in the Bible study was insistent that the father in the prodigal son was a bad guy. He wasn't nice to his son, and he favored one over the other, and this person had experienced that in his life, so the illustration Jesus using fell on deaf ears to him because he didn't understand fatherhood, you see. And, the, uh, and so the illustration couldn't work for him. Friends, the Word of God has one meaning, sometimes many applications, but one meaning, all right? Illustrations, not so much. And so when I speak of order and symmetry and purpose, they're always the result of the creator God, of the intelligent designer in the, in the universe. And so I ask, how could it possibly happen that a dumb disaster in space could, could put a solar system in place? How could a habitable planet, I'm talking about Earth, by the way, friends, look at me. It's the only habitable planet. I don't care what Fox News is saying these days. This is it. All right? And I will stand on that. Okay? UFOs, the U is for unidentified. Okay? That doesn't mean, you know, put your theory on it. I think they're Martians. I don't know what you think. But the only habitable planet comes from a prehistoric collision of galactic rocks. How does that happen? And even if there is some attempt to explain this as possible, explain how the perfectly operating ecosystems of the earth emerged from a cosmic disaster. How does photosynthesis emerge? Remember photosynthesis? Plants eat sunlight to make them green. How does that happen by accident? We had a big explosion. Now there's plants, and now they eat sunlight, and now you can eat the plant. The perfect system of green foliage feeding off the rays of the sun, which, by the way, the sun is a star. It's our closest star. It's 93 million miles away. If it was any more, we'd freeze. If it was any closer, we'd all die. Just by accident. It's perfectly distant so we don't burn and so we don't freeze. And if there's some contorted attempt... To explain all this phenomenal order of the universe, how would man fit into the scheme of creation? If a mindless explosion in space could bring our world into existence in its perfect seasonal and cyclical order, how could man emerge from the slime? Friends, man emerged from the slime. Did you ever see the? Uh, was it Peter Jackson, the the Lord of the Rings, and the and the. And uh, the evil wizard makes this beings, these beings, the orokai the that come out of the slime. That's what they think man really did. I mean, Tolkien was calling it fiction. These people are telling us it's real, it's science, and we have to believe it. Why? Because we're scientists. Look at my Coke. It's white. <laughs> Friends, even if man could emerge from the slime, where does his in- extraordinary intelligence come from? you got to look at the right men for this illustration to work. This can't work with everyone. (laughs) You might say, that guy came from the slime. (laughs) Friend, does mud produce thought? Does mud produce thought? You look down at a mud hole and you think, I wonder what deep thoughts are coming out of that. Can molten rock compose operas? Can the primordial broth infuse self-conscious thought into its creatures? And so even if we all choose to believe in the extraordinary accident that created our world and man somehow evolved from the lower forms of life and that a fiery, gaseous, beautiful sunset is just the product of a rare but life-giving collision of matter, where would man's appreciation of the beauty of a sunset come from? Why do I love to look at the sunset? How do I know it's beautiful? Do rocks see beauty in the world? Friends, if the human race was just the product of a happy cosmic accident and everything emerged from a mindless conversion, convergence rather, of solids and liquids and gases, how does the scientist account for love? Did love come out of an explosion of rocks that cooled over millennia? Did the Big Bang produce love? Is a cosmic explosion responsible for the works of Shakespeare? Did language emerge from the slime? How did music and poetry and painting and sculpture and architecture evolve? Are we being asked by the evolutionists to believe that all this does not come from the heart of an intelligent, purposeful, merciful creator? Friends, it's lunacy. How do rock collisions in space create morality? Perhaps you've noticed that as our view of the world descends into godlessness, that godly morality descends with it. Have you noticed that? The more we believe this stuff, that we're here by accident, the less accountable we are to a moral code of an authoritative creator. Have you noticed that godlessness craves disorder? They like it. They like disorder. You know, one of the most foolish euphemisms that came out of the last big movement of riots and protests was the phrase, mostly peaceful. (laughs) I don't want to live in a mostly peaceful neighborhood. I want it to be completely peaceful until I get mad at something. That's what I want. Note the atheism produces calls to defund law enforcement. Friends, law enforcement is the symbol of order. We call it law and order. (laughs) Friends, atheism produces disorder. Note that as the Mindlessness of atheism and agnosticism and blasphemy and hatred of God increases. Our society descends into immoral disregard for order, for property, for life, and for peace. And you wonder why Solomon says, was it Solomon or Rodney King? Just be nice to each other. Why can't we all just get along? (laughs) Remember when that became a a proverb? It's like you, you think you don't need to hear this, but you do. And so Solomon points out that our orderly world came out of an orderly mind. There is a creator, and his creation has moral lessons for the creator's crowning achievement to learn and to practice. You know, that's another revelation of God, that man is the crowning achievement of creation. We're the only thing in creation made in the image of God. That's it. The lions are noble creatures, kings of the forest of the jungle, rather, even though they live in a savanna and not in a jungle. But they're noble, but they're not made in God's image. Right? The giraffes are not made in God's image. The worms that you want in your garden are not made in God's image. Free-range chickens aren't made in God's image. They're free on the range, but they're not made in God's image. The farmer is, but the chicken's not we got to remember these things. Friends, nature teaches us things. Even some godless but nonetheless scrutinizing observers, scientists, and philosophers have stumbled upon the fact that nature has something to teach about morality. Do you ever have to defend your home? It's called territoriality. Animals do it. It's a lesson of nature. It's natural. I saw a hummingbird this big fend off a blue jay this big because it came too close to his nest. Now, there's no way he could take the blue jay. But he's defending his home. And because he has every right, he won the battle. Blue jay flew away. And the the, uh, the little nest is still there. Moral lessons may be gleaned from the instruction of nature. And so the writer urges the next generation of human beings to learn the lessons of nature and of nature's God. And so he begins his list and we read, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Be nice to people if you have opportunity. Verse 28, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you today. Sounds like he owes him something, right? If you owe it, give it, pay it. Why? Because the laborer is worthy of his wage, another revelation of God. It's a moral dictate of Almighty God. If you've earned it, it's yours. And that brings up another point. Private property is sacred to God. Friends, why, do it, why is this important today? Because if you don't know much about economic systems, sociology, in the socialistic viewpoint, property is not sacred. It's not owned by the individual. Well, God says that it is. And it's enshrined in the commandment which says, thou shalt not steal. You can't take property because it belongs to the other guy. You have to get your own. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. You know, we just spent a year having our leaders tell us that we're a danger to one another. God says we contribute to each other's safety. Do not strive with a man without cause. If he has done you no harm. Seems obvious. But Solomon tells us to observe it. Friends, man is a societal creature. A gregarious being. You know what gregarious is? I used to have a Scottish boss and he used to say gregarious. You know what gregarious means? I looked it up. It means fond of company. (laughs) It means social. Men are gregarious. We, women. I, I say men as the, as the name of the race, you know. One preacher said a, a female tiger never got mad for being called a tiger. Um. So men are, cre- men are social creatures. I, I have to say, if we in this moment, in this year of imposed societal lockdowns, have not figured out that people need interaction with other people, we've been truly poisoned by the rhetoric of safety at all cost. Friends, I want to be safe too. But not at all cost. Not at the cost of something more dear, like freedom, liberty. And you notice that the purveyors of disorder set impossible goals for society. There'll never be a zero chance of catching a disease, even if it's a pandemic. There'll never be a zero chance. Friends, we talk a lot today about racism and rooting it out. You never root it out completely. It's part of the sin embedded in in the creature. You'll never root it out. You can tamp it down and make it unpopular. That's really about the best you can do with it. Men will always strive with one another without a cause. That's why Solomon says don't do it. Solomon's point from verse 29, do not devise evil against your neighbor for he dwells by you for safety's sake. We have an adage that goes like this. There's safety in numbers. We have been told for a year that there's danger in numbers. Friends, there's safety in numbers. Human beings rely on one another for the basic contributors of life. I have an illustration for you. (laughs) When's the last time you slaughtered a steer or a pig? Anybody? Brian, you slaughtered a steer? Pig. Okay. Everyone except Brian. Who is... (laughs) You ruined my illustration. Um, (laughs) Most of us don't slaughter our own animals, right? Our neighbors do it for us. We don't even know who they are. When... We find our cows and pigs, they're neatly wrapped in cellophane with the, tri- with the, uh, with the fat trimmed off. Karen goes to the butcher and says, I, I want the roast, but I want, it. I want the fat trimmed off. And he does it for her because he likes her. Friends, it's your neighbor who did the dirty work. He's the one that killed the cow and the pig and the chicken and the turkey that you get neatly sliced at the deli. <laughs> When you call 911 someone has broken into your house you're not dismayed if the policeman who arrives is of another political party in fact you wouldn't even think to ask him you're not even concerned if he has a different skin color are you and you're not even concerned if he worships another god you're just glad he's there cuz he's your neighbor and he d- you dwell he dwells by you for safety yours and his you're content that a neighbor's de- designated to law enforcement of safety an investigation of wrongdoing. You're glad he's on the case. And it gives your heart rest to know that he or she is there. Friends, man is a social creature. When was the last time you were stranded on a highway in a remote part of the country? That ever happened to you? You're just out there. It's 105 degrees. Daniel, uh, Jane, Joe's going to Phoenix in a couple weeks. It's going to be 118 degrees there when he gets there. You don't want to be stranded on a highway. One time I was out in Phoenix with some friends, and this friend, was uh, he had all kinds of toys, and he had a Triumph motorcycle, and I took the motorcycle, and I drove through the uh, outskirts of the city, and they have what's called Camelback Mountain there. It's just a big hump. It looks like a camel. It's red, right? It's like red, I don't know, clay or something. So I said, I'm going to climb old Camelback. I was a young guy then. I did stuff like that. So I put down the kickstand, Leaned the Triumph over, and I climbed up, and when I got up to the top, I looked down, and Triumph was laying on its side. It melted right through the blacktop. You don't want to be stranded on a highway out there. You know what I mean? Because what's the first thing you want? Another person to come by. Because there's safety in numbers. There's safety in human society, Right? Your first hope is that a passing motorist would stop to offer aid. You don't care what his personal convictions are about government spending or immigration. All you want, all you need from him is a ride to another place where there are other people because there's safety there and drinks and toilets and things we all cherish. Society is essential, friends. Society keeps us safe. Aristotle... Talking a lot about Aristotle lately, similar proverb. He said, Man is a social animal. He also said, Man is a political animal. And this comes from his treatise called Politics. Man is a social animal. And so the writer of the Proverbs continues to glean the moral lessons from the orderly world that is the creation of God. And so he offers the reader a social agenda, how to get along with one another. He tells us how to walk not only in the world, but in the society of other men. And so he writes, do not strive with a man without cause. Have you ever known someone that just loved picking a fight, even when you didn't have to? I always said, in your evangelism, when people make um, remarks that you you don't have to pick every battle, you can let it slide. Don't strive without a cause. Notice he said without a cause. Sometimes there's cause. But if he's done you no harm, don't strive with him. There will be strife in life. And really, friends, it's due to sin. And sin is the kink in the armor of the created order. Man's the crowning achievement, but only man could introduce sin to the world. The animals couldn't do it. Only man could do it. And because of sin, men will always strive with other men. You'll never get to zero striving. Men will always strive with other men. If we've learned anything from the history of society, its men will always strive. Remember the war to end all wars? That was World War I. Think of the, all the wars that came after it. Same century we had World War II. another huge war. right? Same players. James in the Bible asked his famous question, where do fights and wars come from among you? Where do you suppose they come from? They come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. Fights and wars come from within us. We're the source. Sin reigns, indeed it is a war, within the breast of all people. Paul wrote of it. Paul said of himself, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. There's a very strong, potent force within us called sin that tries to get us to yield to temptation. But we have another power we can call upon. Paul wrote, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ the Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Suffice it to say, the soul of man is at war. Now some of you may remember, some of you that remember Pastor Ken, you know what I'm going to say already. Pastor Ken used to talk about an Italian, um Italian, an African proverb where one missionary found from a tribal leader somewhere in the dark recesses of, the, of that continent in, in mission work, that one of the uh, proverbs of them was there are, two, there are two dogs fighting within me. There's a black dog and there's a white dog. And they're always at war within me. And so the missionary said, which one wins? And the man said, the one I feed. So don't feed. Don't tempt yourself. Don't tempt your your evil instincts to give in to temptation. Feed the white dog within you. Feed the Holy Spirit within you with the word of God. Envy and strife are there to trouble your soul, they are there to conquer it. But God has given a gift to man. Man is the only creature on earth that looks ahead. Right? I talked about goldfish a couple weeks ago. The goldfish is not planning ahead. Right? Not saving up for his kid's college education. Have to have to save a lot because they have like hundreds of babies. No, the goldfish isn't doing that. Only man is looking to the future. And man is able to calculate outcomes by considering the usual course of actions and probable reactions. But you've noticed there's a breakdown in that. We've called to break down law enforcement, and guess what happened? Who would have figured lawlessness would break out? And we're losing the ability. People really believe in the nonsensical progress that we're talking about here. And it's a descending order of society. It's wisdom, friends. It's the wisdom of God. The light of Christ that's granted to every man that corrals temptation to grasp for what is not our own. They build a fence around temptation. You don't go into there. John wrote of this inner light. He said, it was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, we're not speaking of salvation here per se, but rather a common grace, a rational thought And um, A common grace, rather, of rational thought and predictable outcomes. But just as common sense has fallen on hard times, so has common grace. And our society is rejecting the wisdom of God at a phenomenal speed. And with wisdom goes order, and with order goes peace, and with peace, property goes, and when property goes, prosperity goes, And we have destruction. And the godless man likes destruction. I'm going to illustrate that. And so Solomon moves on from speaking about avoiding strife, and he speaks rather of those who willfully cause strife. And he calls them the oppressor. The oppressor is the one who has not bridled his passions. Right? He's the one who resists the inner light of godly wisdom that gives light to every man coming into the world. Paul says this of the mass of humanity inhabiting our world. He said, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful and became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Friends, they put out the light. The light was there. They put it out. They had the power. They had the the will, the free will, the power of it to put out the light of Christ in their hearts. And they turned it off. And they wonder why they walk in darkness. And so Paul goes on. He says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so they put the light out. You retain God in your knowledge, you put the light on, right? You don't like to retain God in your knowledge, just shut the light off. Don't think about God anymore. Don't come to church. Don't read the Bible. Don't worry about the Proverbs of Solomon. Just go about your business. And so what does it say? God gave them over to a debased mind. Friends, the mindlessness in society is a judgment of an offended God. That's where it comes from. We've read from the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remember that? Proverbs 9.10. So I guess we can conclude that the converse is also true. The the rejection of God is the beginning of lunacy. And I've always said that to you. Remember? Remember? The phrase, use it or lose it. You remember that? that? That refers to a lot of things. Well, it's true of wisdom. You know, wisdom has a shelf life. It's like a muscle that through disuse atrophies. And it won't get up anymore. Can't use it. Haven't used your legs for a long time. They don't want to walk. I've been there. And when that muscle of wisdom goes limp and lifeless within you, it may not be revived apart from the intervention of God. And so men do cause strife. Men do lust and covet and envy. James again said, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And he's talking about asking of God. That's how the light gets turned back on. Ask God for wisdom who gives to all liberally and without reproach. Now, I've always wondered why men become gangsters. Like, why would you do that? Well, obviously, it's, it's to obtain some sort of basic power and respect. You know, gangsters, oppressors, people that just are on the take, right? Why do they do that? They want power and respect, it seems. And they think respect comes from gaining and from enforcing your will on other people. And it's generally through fear and intimidation or even violence and murder that they... That they oppress other people. But with all of this obtaining by means other than those commended by God, there's no peace. So the gangster or the oppressor can obtain all these things, but he can't have peace in it. Because he has to be on the lookout for the other gangster, the one who's more violent and more deadly than him, that's going to come and reclaim all his stuff. So he can be king of the hill. So I've always wondered, why would you want to live that way? I'd rather be poor than a rich gangster. Power... And wealth, obtained by fear and and intimidation, is an empty gain. What good is wealth, friends, without peace? It's on hold until a man, an oppressor, more violent and determined than you, comes to take it all back. Solomon elsewhere speaks of grasping for the wind. That's a poetic way of saying grasping for what's not yours. And so Solomon wrote this. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full grasping for the wind be content with what you have and then there's peace and then there's fulfillment be thankful for what you have and you'll find that it will be multiplied miraculously in your sight and for your use and I've illustrated that to you many times by the feeding of the 5,000 verses 31 and 32 do not envy the oppressor that's why gangsters become gangsters they envy the, the, the other gangster they want to be him Right, They want his life, they want his power, they want his respect, if that's what you call it. And it says here, don't envy the oppressor, choose none of his ways, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. And so we have to talk about envy here. Imagine envying someone for doing evil and for being an evil person. It happens all the time. The, the Psalms are full of warnings about envying the unrighteous Wherever there is strife, friends, suspect envy. Injustice, suspect envy. Inequality, envy. Adultery, envy. Lust for power, envy. The desire to be like the oppressor who seems to have gained much by his tactics. You may conclude that envy is at the root of it. Do you have sibling rivalry between you? That's from envy. Church splits are from envy. We've seen it in action. It's a terrible force. I've always told you that envy, it's like jealousy, but it's not jealousy. Jealousy is the sneaking suspicion that someone's trying to get what you have. You know, like the jealous husband. Oh, he's looking at my wife. He wants my wife. No such thing is happening, but he, he has jealousy within him. It's tearing him apart. Envy is the insipid loathing of a person. When you envy a person, you begin to hate him because he has something you don't want. With envy, there is an insipid loathing of the person you envy. You see? Are you able to rejoice in another person's good fortune? I taught my boys this all their lives. You know? Oh, I treat my children equally. Not me. I never did. It's not the way. I treat them according to their needs as a loving father. This one has this need, this, this. I wouldn't treat them equally. You know? Um, I think I told you the story one night, Joseph was crying. Joseph cried a lot. Not so much anymore. <laughs> I was giving him more credit than he was giving himself. Um, he used to cry to keep us up. I mean, it was like, when are we ever going to sleep? I know you guys have kids, and maybe that's happening now to you, but uh, it does get over. And when it's over, it, it, you find out it wasn't really that long. It just seemed long. With Joe, it seemed really long. And one night, we got him up and we're downstairs and we got him out of the crib and we're trying to rock him to sleep, and maybe it was teething or whatever it was, and down the stairs comes Daniel, right? What are you doing here at midnight? If Joe can be up, I can be up. I said, oh, you want me to treat you like Joe? I picked him up, brought him up, slammed him in the crib at 10 years old, or whatever he was. He's 10 years old than Joe. I might have the wrong participants here, I'm gonna be corrected, it might have been James, but uh, I stuck him in the crib. All kinds of complaining about that. He said, you want to be treated like your brother? That's, how, that's where he's going as soon as he stops crying. So stop trying and sleep in your crib. Um, no, he wanted out of there fast, and he understood the, the message. And he became the man he is today because of that incident. <laughs> uh, are you able to rejoice in another's good fortune? If not, it's because of envy. It's sort of like, he doesn't deserve that. I deserve that. But he got it. And I hate him for it. I'm telling you, that's what it's really saying in your heart. <coughs> if you're not able to rejoice in another's good fortune, you're envious. But if you are able to rejoice in another's good fortune, you have found the cure for an envious spirit. An envious spirit cannot be blessed of God. And so all your envious striving to obtain what others have, all your wicked loathing of the so-called haves of society, and your self-loathing as a have-not, Comes from envy. The haves and the have nots. Jesus said, The poor you will always have with you. It ain't going away. The next Miss America will not solve world hunger. I promise you. She'll promise it, but she won't deliver. Because narcissistic beauty queens don't deliver on things like that. But, friends, Cain killed Abel because of envy. Jacob and Esau strove all their lives between them due to envy of their father's affection. The sons of Israel sold their brother Joseph into slavery due to their, their, due to their collective envy of him. It was envious priests that brought Christ to the cross. He had the people's hearts. They did not, so they destroyed him because of envy. They hated him because of envy. Even Pilate and Herod wanted to let him go. The priests said no. The perverse are an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. And then he goes on, he says, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. That's what I would expect a righteous God to do. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. You know, when I came across that Juicy phrase, Legacy of Fools, I had to name this sermon that. The Legacy of Fools. We all leave behind an estate. It may be a glorious estate. It may be a meager estate. Or it may be a shameful estate. But every person leaves a mark on this life. What, we might ask, is our legacy? What is our legacy? How has my life affected the world I leave behind when I'm gone from it? Well, I'm looking at the world that we're living in right now, and what I see is that we're currently and intermittently either spectators or participants in a society society that is actively seeking its own ruin. Now, we have said that since I've been in the evangelical churches, but now we're really seeing it come apart. The Proverbs of the day applied reveal that our society will inherit the legacy of fools. I see so much of envy, it has become quite disturbing. You know, it's been said of capitalism that it's based on greed, and I agree with that. It's based on greed, and greed's not good either. But socialism is the force that drives, envy rather, drives socialism. Now, we've seen people, we've seen protesters in the streets of the nation destroying and burning property for no other reason than that it's not theirs. Thankfully, they're mostly peaceful, though. There's a cry for this social justice. I'm here to tell you that no such thing exists as social justice. And if it did, the ones that are crying for it would not be appeased when it showed up. Social justice is just another way of saying collective envy. It's a craving for what others have and it's a hatred of them for having it. I'm just pointing it out that we recognize it when we see it. Socialism, friends, and I know some of you maybe it's not so bad. Socialism is the hope that redistribution of economic goods will appease those who presently see themselves as oppressed. I'm here to tell you, you could break it all up and give it to them and they won't be appeased. That's not how you get appeased. There's something righteous and self-satisfying about applying your spiritual gifts to a task and earning something for yourself. Then you're like the hummingbird. You know that nest is yours, and the blue jay can't get it. Right? You're going to plunder the strong man's house. You must first bind the strong man, Jesus said. It's expected you will protect what's yours. Now, socialism is that hope that redistribution of economic goods will appease those who presently see themselves as oppressed. I'm aware of historic injustices. Friends, I see it. I may say I'm also appalled at social historic injustices. History has shown, however, that there are no present cures for past sins. There's only redirection and redemption. Try again, go in a better direction. Now, have I ever told you, and this is my illustration of this from history, by the way, a real case. Have I ever told you about the Kulaks? Does anyone know the Kulaks? Okay. Okay. They were the peasants in Soviet Russia. Under Stalin's socialist agenda, the peasants lost their incentive to produce. Well, why wouldn't they? You know, on a peasant farm in Soviet Russia, you had eight acres of land per male in the family, so they would continue having children. And the ones that had more children got more land given to them through the state. You see what I'm saying? But they would work just hard enough to feed the family and have maybe a little left over, but not much. When you do that in a society... You starve the society. There's no incentive to produce any more than you will need for yourself. So they had to do something in Stalinist Russia at the time. And so Stalin and his operatives conceived a plan to incentivize the peasant class by letting them keep their surplus, bring it to market, and reap the, the rewards of that. And guess what happened? In other words, what did they do? They had a socialist society That was starving. So what did they do? They introduced capitalism for a while to make it take off. And so what happens? Well, it appears not all peasants are created equal. Some had larger farms to begin with. Some had better farm equipment. Some had more children to work the farm and inherit the land. You see what I'm saying? You see where this is going? And so a whole new class emerged. The kulaks emerged. And they were the rich peasants. They were the ones that worked hard and became wealthy and were envied by the leaders in their government. They were so wealthy, they started banks and lending to their friends and making money in all sorts of venues. So in the Stalinist regime, they had to go for two reasons. One, they were richer than the leaders, right? And number two, they were showing that socialism can't possibly feed a nation. Envy will never do it. And so the Kulaks got rich. And the other lesser-equipped peasants didn't do so well. When the incentive program was set to expire, because it was just a temporary measure to ward off the nation's food crisis, the Kulaks resisted government intervention. They liked it. Why wouldn't they? And so in a social system built on envy, there was only one alternative. The Kulaks had to go. Their property, which was vast, had to be taken. They were only 4% of the peasant class. Their property had to be taken. The kulaks themselves had to be disposed of. So they sent a lot of them to Siberia, but most of them they just killed. And like all the mass killings of history, nobody knows how many thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands they killed. So rather than let them enjoy the fruits of their labors, they were summarily rounded up and deported or killed. Friends, do not envy the oppressor and do not follow after his ways. Now the whole scheme was driven by an envious lust for power and privilege. The envious oppressor did away with the nation's producers and so plunged all of society into hunger and starvation for generations to come. And so our proverb for the day is well advised. Do not envy the oppressor. He's out there, friends. He's powerful, but don't envy him because his ways are wicked before the Lord and he will inherit a legacy of fools. And make no mistake, friends... Fools can be deadly fools. Now there's a frightening illustration of this in the Annals of the Wisdom of Solomon. And I refer you to 1 Kings chapter chapter 3. Remember the story? There were two harlots who lived together and they came before Solomon with a complaint. The great king, the great wise king, right? Um, Each of them had a child. Each of the harlots, they were roommates and they each had a son. All right? All right. But one, and the sons were babies. But one night, one of the children died. One of the harlots, probably in a drunken stupor, rolled over and smothered the kid. Right? Do you know the story? And so one of the children died. So in the morning, she swapped the kids, She swapped the kids out. Her child died. She swapped the kids out, and she took the other child. And they argued as to whom the living son belonged. I mean, the woman knew her own son. You killed yours. That doesn't mean you can have mine. I know it's not just. I know it's not equity. But he's still my son. I'm still the hummingbird protecting my nest. So they argued as to who the son belonged, and they brought their irreconcilable complaint to the king. The lady would not give in. She wouldn't repent. She'd say, oh, you know, I just felt so bad that my son died. I'm so sorry. I don't know what. That never happened because of envy. And so Solomon rendered judgment, and this is what he said. He said, give me a sword, divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. You remember that? And one of the women pleaded for the life of the child. She said, oh, my Lord King, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other one said, no, let him be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. So the king said, give the living child to the first woman because she is the mother. You see, envy is so corrupt that in the end it's satisfied with mutual destruction. It doesn't Care. It won't be around to rebuild after it destroys. Envy, the outcome that produces winners and losers, for envy, the outcome that produces winners and losers is more detestable than the total destruction of both. So while envy is the legacy of fools, love proves ownership. Right? The woman that, even if Solomon mixed it up and she wasn't the real mother. She was the one that loved. She was the only fit mother. But she was the real mother. Um, The envious woman was content to see the child destroyed so long as the other did not have him to love and, and enjoy. Because then she wouldn't have to envy so much anymore. Envy hurts, it's like a poison, it's like a sickness. You want to get rid of it. Friends, remember this envy is not rational, it's not appeasable. Desiring what is not yours is far more tasty truffle than actually obtaining it. And so, okay, if you're ready, I'm going to give you the Star Trek illustration of the day. Jared, are you listening? Mr. Spock once observed of the human race that having is not so pleasing a thing after all as wanting. It's not logical, but it is often true, he said. Friend, social justice is the call for equality of outcomes. It can't possibly happen. Stalin tried it with the peasants. And some of the peasants did better than the others. It will always happen. Some people, friends, some people are smarter. It's wonderful for political parties to call for things that are humanly impossible and materially unattainable. Because then the battle rages on and the battle is what it's about. If If such things could be accomplished, the war would be over. But you see, the continuation of the war is the goal for the envious malcontent. And for those who destroy city blocks because of their own lack of productive incentives, they become learned in the ways of destruction. That's what they now know. Envy taught them that. They have no other skill. Destruction is their gift. And they'll not be there to rebuild either for themselves or for their deserving victims. We have indeed, or are indeed, inheriting the legacy of fools. You know, Jesus was a lot of things, friends, but he was not a socialist, He said this, and I'll close with these thoughts. Jesus said, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. That's not your basic social justice maxim, is it? Whatever thing he means by this, and turn to the context and read it for yourself, but it can never be appropriated as a means to equality of outcomes. In other words, socialist Jesus is not on your side. And I've heard him used for that. That's why I say this today. What does Jesus do? He blesses the home of the just, Solomon wrote. He scorns the scornful. He gives grace to the humble. The wise will inherit glory, but shame is the legacy of fools. Amen. Our Father, we thank you this morning for these lessons. Lead us into the thoughts, the deep thoughts of God, O Lord, for your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts than our thoughts. O Father, in Jesus' name, let us think your thoughts after you. We thank you for the wisdom of Solomon and for the Proverbs and for the Word of God and the Spirit of God to apply it to our hearts. Amen.